So it is uh, June 14th. 2015, our message today is called A Fly in the Ointment. If you're a guest here today, we don't consider people guests that have shown up three times. We've claimed you as members, whether or not you have claimed us is irrelevant. We love you. We're your fan. It just so happens that I haven't been here in three services because I've been in some other places. And so if I look at you like you're a guest and you're a member, forgive me, I'm still catching up to speed. I can't make apologies for what the Lord has given me to do today and at the same time is with a certain level of intrepidation. How many of you like to clean your house before your guests show up? Well, today is a house cleaning in the midst of guests. I want to tell you that there are many men who fail to pastor. And they fail to pastor because they lack the courage to address issues. Or they lack the compassion for the sheep that would drive that courage. I lack neither. I would rather stand with ten people who are serious about the King of Kings, who will do anything that the Lord says to do, than stand with 990 who are only marginally committed to Him. My heart's desire is that we would experience revival together. I know what it is to preach on five continents in more than 20 countries. That's not bragging. That's not a pedigree. I'm telling you that I've tasted of the streams of the moving of the Lord in many places. And I became very encouraged at the arising church because what is happening there is genuine revival. The pastors there are very careful. They don't say that. Uh, they, want, they, they actually feel like that word is probably trite or overused. But when you see transformation on a level that means the police can come to two of three meetings that I did, get invited in, get prayed for, and show up in church the next week. When you can have 136 people in the building, which not a big number, about like what's here but 21 of them be first-time visitors because they heard lives are changing. I would call that revival. With 136 people there, when you see 15 people that genuinely, boldly repent publicly, one who stands up after hearing prophecies in the service, just like tongues and interpretation that we heard today. See, I cannot stand it anymore. God has laid my heart bare before all of you. It's like you're speaking to me. I need to be saved now. When you hear that, how can you not call it revival? When you see people say things like, I've been prayed for for years with no success. My feet hurt and here are the problems with them and I love the Lord. And if he never heals me, I'll never love him any less. I love him with all my heart. I dance on my hurt feet. But I feel hope today. Will you pray for me? And they get healed. I would say that's revival. When you see people baptized in the Holy Ghost that have been entrenched in a religious spirit that has caged them, and now they're free, I would call that revival. I bring you greetings from the Arising Church. I also tell you it has spurred me on. We're going to make changes here. There are growth cycles in churches. When we met in living rooms, we were so excited to see a single life transformed 
that we could ride on that all year. And then somewhere along the way, as the buildings got a little bigger, as more people came, as we did more things, we found it in our hearts to be able to criticize something that was pure. We could go, you know what? Three people got saved today, and that was amazing. But if Pastor Wade had just done a better job, I bet six would have gotten saved. And it's like there is a fly in the ointment. I want to return to something that is beautiful, something that is pure. And I'm going to tell you, I am a fan of every person in this room. I love you. I moved to this state for you. I was very happy where I was, and that in itself is a miracle. Because now when I go back, I hate it. I think Louisiana is a third world country, and I don't mind saying so. I don't want to live there. I only want to go there to visit people that I love. But while I was there, it was the kingdom of God on earth. I loved it. And if you love it still, well, you can deal with all the offense that I'm about to throw at you in any measure that you like. I want with all of my heart to see this work prosper. And I heard the pastors, and I listened to the kind of courageous things that they did while I was gone. And I was so proud of them. They took on serious issues. It's easy to preach. I can preach to applause anywhere that I want to. The Lord doesn't often let me do that, but I can do it. Pastoring, however, is what goes on between preachings. The conversation that is struck in the home because of the sermon that was preached is the beginning of pastoring, the following up with people intertwined, caring about their lives. That is pastoring. And these pastors have not failed to do that. In the growth cycle of our church, no matter how many times we expand and then contract and expand and contract, we're going to keep some fundamentals pure. And today... If you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me just get a few disclaimers out of the way. Every pastor in the world is going to look at you and say, I am not talking about you. This one says I am talking specifically about you and the person next to you and the one next to them and the one behind you. And if you walk up afterwards and you tell me, pastor, were you speaking about me? The answer 100% of the time is yes. Who else should I have been speaking to? Some people will not like this. They would much rather go to a church that talks about everyone else. I am speaking about you because God has given me a function within this body. And I'm responsible for how your life turns out. That's a scary thing because I'm a very ordinary person, uh, a very broken person. Uh, You know, I don't lock my doors. Uh, My life is an absolute open book. If you don't choose to live that way, that's between you and the Lord. But I do. So if you stop by my house at any given day, I might be yelling at my kid. Uh, You stop by my house at any given day, and I want you to. I love it. I am open to public correction. And before this meeting is is over, I give you the chance. We'll not stifle you. We'll not shut you down. In fact, what you're going to get is you're going to get me washing your feet in front of this whole body. Because the Lord's trained me, and I know what is right. When my feelings rebel... When my mind begins to justify, I know the standards of the Lord, and I won't let them go. I washed feet last week, I washed feet yesterday, and I'll probably wash feet today. And that's all right, because it is worth humbling yourself to be in right order with God. Is there anybody in this house that wants to be in right order with God? 
Let me go ahead and just get it out there then. Much like the Apostle Paul, who was proud of the church at Corinth. In the first chapter, they're said to have every spiritual gift. By the third chapter, he said, I don't have praise for you in this matter. I hear that there's divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. When I hear that some people prefer one of three pastors, other people prefer two of three pastors, and someone even says, this one's graceless, but that one I like, you are carnal. And it's sad, because the three pastors in this church admire each other. We aspire to be like each other. We are giving up everything. There's not one of us that hasn't sold a house and or a business just to be here. We qualify for Medicaid to serve you. That's the God's honest truth. And I don't work for you. I work for the Lord. And if you try to threaten me by withholding your tithe, God will black out the sky with ravens flying in provision for me because I work for it. So listen to me. I love you. Much like I love my children, but I'm not at all intimidated by you. Not you or anyone else. I cannot be threatened, intimidated, or backed off the truth. It will never happen. If all of you stand up and walk out, then I will stand alone. But it just so happens that I know in this church, there is a core that would never walk out. That emboldens me. That strengthens me. This is not a bully pulpit. What you're going to get today is not... One man with a voice beating up on other people. But some of you have painted yourselves as such victims that that's all you'll hear no matter how it's given. I'm going to address this community like you know the word. I'm going to pretend that the Bible that is sitting in your lap and posted on the screen is an actual contract between you and God that you intend to keep. And I pray that I'm not off base in doing so. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and you answer them for me. Has anybody in here ever bitten into a hamburger to find the center of it was raw? Did you like it? Did you go, oh, goodness, I love when it's charred on the outside and an ice cube on the inside. What if that hamburger looked at you and lied and said it's not true? Look at the outside. I'm doing just fine. Problem must be with you and your taste buds. Anybody in here ever been to a Chinese food restaurant? If you own a Chinese food restaurant, you're going to have to forgive me for this. Get to the bottom of your plate and find half of an insect. Come on, Miss Jennifer. Yeah, I've done it too. Manager came over, flicked off the half of the roach and offered to get me a new plate. Thank you very much for that. I think I will pass. There is a blood thinner given to human beings that is actually a rat poison. You can find it in the attic of this church because we have a rat problem. Every once in a while, one appears while I'm preaching. Rarely is he standing behind the pulpit, but I'll leave that up to you. The rat poison is called Coumadin. How much Coumadin would you like in your drinking water? What would be an acceptable level of Coumadin to have in your drinking water? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to pick up in the 6th chapter. There was more than a hint of sexual immorality among the Corinthians. They were actually in full-blown denial that they were doing anything wrong because after all, the Spirit of God was showing up in their services. Do you know how many men have been anointed and that anointing became the justification for their personal, private sin? 
There was a man named A.A. Allen that healed people that never had anybody ever seen healings like this publicly documented. The problem is he often did it drunk. So the question is, will God use an imperfect person because he loves and cares about the people? Of course. God moving through you is not his endorsement of the entirety of your life. It is his mercy in your life. And I stand here an incredibly flawed person. And yet, God moves through me. That's not an endorsement of every opinion I have. That doesn't make me right. It simply makes me what God has called me, a pastor. He, he has ordained our function. In 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, by the way, while I've got an ADD thing going here for a minute, did y'all like that prayer before the service? Yeah. I thought we would move our service time. We're not. Instead, at 10 o'clock, we're going to begin to pray. That is how we're going to start our services from this point forward. If that doesn't sit well with you, go to Lakewood. Anything will sit well with you there. I want to get right with God, and I want to do it in public fashion. I want to beckon his presence into this building. I don't want to talk about football before services. By the way, I'm wearing an LSU shirt. I, I don't even know who's coaching LSU. That's how disconnected I am from grown men that play children's games. I wear this shirt because I loved my father, and it was his. And when I buried him, he left it to me. I'm not interested in the things of this world, not even a little bit. I'm interested in the kingdom of God being established here on earth. And when we come into this building, it's just a building. You are the church. Okay? The church is not brick and mortar. The church is you. Over 200 times the word church appears in Greek, ecclesia. It never refers to a building, ever. It only refers to you. But when we come into this building as the church, let's be concerned with the things of God. Let's spend at least... 30 minutes, getting our hearts right before we even enter into worship so that our worship leaders, which by the way, our worship leaders get eaten after church more than fried chicken. You would have sung it better. You would have picked a different song. You would have liked this. Shame on you. Don't do that. Uh, maybe you sing better than everybody in this building. Maybe you write music better than anyone in this building. And yet, the glaring fact remains that God only put whoever he put up here, up here. Take it up with him if you don't like it. If you're jealous of the sound booth, then take that up with God. There's only three seats back there. Justin would give up his this morning. He doesn't even want to be there. He's there because the guy who is normally there is not there. None of us are envious for the positions we have. We are reluctant servants. I wanted to go minister in other countries. I wanted to face headhunter cannibals. I wanted to go down in a blaze of glory for the King of Kings. I watched too many John Wayne movies. And instead, he has me doing marriage counseling in the United States. Slightly more dangerous and a whole lot less glorious. Listen to the attitude of this apostle. It's 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, say a little yeast, works through the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Come on. 
You are sons and daughters of God. And those of you in here not born again before the service is over, we'll give you the opportunity. We are not, certain things are unbecoming of us. Discontentment, dissensions, factions, envy. That's unbecoming of us. How many of you know what Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh means? Come on, get a hand up if you know what it means. God is my provider. If you don't like the life that he has provided you with, you're insulting him. You're spitting on him. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Is that not enough? Jesus' life in exchange for yours? Your rotten, nasty, putrid, diseased life was credited to him and his righteous life was credited to you. Is that not enough? How could it not be? Dare we stand as the house of God and wish he had done more for us? Look at the leaders in our church and say, if only they would come to their senses, then my life would be better. Is that what the story of Joseph tells us? That everybody else's actions determine God's purpose for you? Is that what it tells us? His brother sold him out. Did it stop him? Potiphar's wife lied about him. Did it stop him? The baker got hung and the cupbearer forgot about him. Did it stop him? Nobody is responsible for the call of God on your life but you. We have to stop looking around and thinking somebody is holding you back besides you. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I'm going to pray one more time here. I'm going to get knee deep in truth. It'll be a sincere, a without wax, no cover up, absolute exposing of my heart on this matter. If you like it, praise God. If you do not like it, I'm unconcerned with your feelings. I work for the king. I do hope that as we remove yeast from the building, that what begins to happen is not one or two, or whoever thinks I'm talking about them, which I hope is everyone. I hope every person in here identifies something in their heart that needs to die. I've known some of you for decades, others of you for months. You know, it is an amazing thing how clearly we can see sin in other people and we cannot see it in our own lives. I do not want the testimony about my life to be the testimony that some of you wear. That brother did great in 99% of his life, but this one area, he never corrected and everybody knew it. Never could see it. Today, I'm going to ask God after this prayer in sincerity and truth to show us even if it's only one area so that every man, woman, and child that leaves this building leaves in better condition with their king instead of imposing on themselves a blessing and calling it all good and saying, well, God showed up, so it must be good. I think history proves that's not true. Father, I ask now that your spirit of truth would be in this building. Lord, I confess openly before you, the angels, and these people that I am more than flawed. I am sinful beyond description at times. I am broken in my very inner being. The only thing working good in me 
is the word that you have put there and the spirit which brings it to life. And I'm asking, Lord, now that you would bring that out of me for their benefit. Almighty God, that each of us would be crushed, that you might be exalted. Let us be broken in this place, Lord, that we might truly become meek and learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be like you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Turn with me to Mark 10. Say there when you were there. You know, a little yeast. Yeast is used two ways in the Bible. One way is as the yeast of the Pharisees, a kind of religious spirit that twists the doctrine of the church. The other way is yeast is used of the kingdom of God. The truth is, is whatever's been deposited in you, whether it's righteousness or wickedness, it's going to grow. It will never stay stagnant. Yeast in itself is a catalyst. You have inside of you catalyst for change, whether good or bad. We have to be very careful to exterminate what is bad, not nurture it, not protect it, not build fences around it and tell the whole world, stay away from it. This defines me. We want to be defined by the king's righteousness. So every message, every reading of the scripture, every worship service, we have a couple questions at play. What does the Bible say? How does my life relate to that? And what am I personally going to do to bridge the gap between what the word says and the life that I'm living? And your flesh's tendency is simply going to want to justify the reason you are why you are. Let me tell you why you are like you are. You're a sinner. And you're in the midst of transformation. We don't need to understand you. We don't need to sit and talk about it. We don't have to have long walks on the beach and fuzzy, heartfelt conversations about why you sin. What we need to do is gather the courage and the strength to address sin and move on beyond it. That's, that's all there is. And there is nothing more. There ought to be an amen in the house of God. Perhaps it's quiet because you know I'm speaking about you. I am, all of you. If you like, I think I can call every name in the building. But I would rather not. I'd rather just say I'm talking to all of you. Ephesians 5.3 mentions something else. You don't have to go there. You're in Mark 10. It says, don't let there be a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, greed. Don't let there be a hint. There's something in the chemical industry called parts per million. How many parts per million is acceptable? I don't know what hint means. I mean, a hint is not actually even real. A hint is just the suggestion that it may be real. It sounds like you cannot have any parts per million in you of a bad thing, an impure thing. Now, if you can sit here with a clear conscience and say, Oh, pastor, I got nothing. Like I said, there's a church where you're already a champion, but in this church, we're still being made into champions. In Mark 10, starting in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, who wouldn't like this? Did anybody have this experience today? Someone ran up to you. I mean, they came running at you. If that happens in Houston, you probably brace or reach for a gun. <laughs> Fell on their face and said, good teacher, what must I do? I mean, is this not every pastor's dream? 
Look at Jesus' response to this man. Why do you call me good? Do you call Jesus good because you've examined your life next to his and you see that everything about him is good and in comparison everything about you is wrong? Or do you call him good because that's your presumption about yourself and everyone else? We're pretty good people. I'm good folks. I come from good folks. Do you love to tell your testimony as an unbroken testimony? I want to tell you, you have a self-image problem if you cannot admit, not just sin in general, but specific sin in front of the whole world. Because Jesus didn't die for sin in general. He died for your specific sin. You've been in the kingdom decades, been in the kingdom months, and you can't think of a time that you stood up publicly and said, I sinned when I said that. I sinned when I did that. When it's only generalities... Well, you know, we're all sinners. None of us is perfect. That means none of you are guilty. That's what it means to you. It's the diffusion of responsibility. Very specific. I should not have wronged you in that way. And I'm broken by it. I'm ashamed of myself. And I'm sorry. That's what repentance looks like. And then you go the other way. Now, we're told that you can get born again and get a USDA stamp Christian simply by repeating a prayer that someone else wrote and we don't even know who and is not found in the Bible. But I'm telling you the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth were repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. This man has come up, he's rich, he's saying the right things and he's asking the right questions. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. How many of you would ever start with that? Hey, how do I get saved? You know the commandments. I mean, there's no place in our theology for the commandments today. Because after all, we're all just positionally righteous. If you prayed a prayer, whether you meant it or not, if you were halfway sincere, maybe six years old, then the commandments are irrelevant to you. You're just righteous in Christ. But what if you're not? What if your life is still full of envy? What if your life is still full of hatred and unforgiveness? Everybody loves John 3.16. Has anybody read Matthew 18? You ever look down around the 37th verse? If you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. That was spoken to people who are supposed to be born again. How many services can you come to and you still have a problem with somebody else sitting in this room because they corrected you at some point? How many services can you do that and you absolve yourself of guilt and move on and invoke a blessing on yourself? I fear God a whole lot more than that. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. In other words, don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. The commandments begin with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no gods besides me. That's one. Two. Moves to, you shall have no graven images. Three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Four, at least one day a week, you know, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. We're going to spend some time together. This is a real relationship. Not just a Facebook status. Would you have started where Jesus started? And is it possible he did not know the commandments? How many of you believe everything Jesus did was for a purpose, that he was intentional? 
He says, do not murder, commandment number six. Do not commit adultery, commandment number seven. Do not steal, commandment number eight. Do not give false testimony or defraud, commandment number nine. If I said six, seven, eight, nine, what would come next? But he doesn't. He goes back to five. Honor your father and mother. Does anybody think Jesus can't count? Six, seven, eight, nine. Alex is an accountant. What comes after nine? Ten. Why are we going back to five? Do you remember what the guy says to Jesus? Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He's righteous in his own eyes. Which begs the question, which commandment did Jesus leave out? You can't covet anything. You can't cling to worldly possessions. You can't love them, want them, hold on to them. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Somebody say, then. Then come follow me. I I need you to grab something here. And, And I mean this from every leader in this building all the way down to our children. A 90 may get you an A in today's school. When I was a kid, it had to be at least a 94. I mean, I hear that. I never got one. (laughs) But now, a 90 is an A. In some places, still a B. How many of you think A's and B's are pretty good? The living God said, be holy, for I am holy. He will not accept a 90. He looks at him and says, do this. Do the 10th commandment. And then you can follow me. In other words, you cannot go with me until you have done this. The scripture says he looked at him and loved him. Says the guy went away sad. If you have one unconquered area in your life, you cannot move forward with Jesus without conquering that area. You know what you can move forward without? The ones you don't know about. What David called in Psalm 19, uh, unwillful sins. Things he didn't didn't know. They were hidden faults, things he was not aware of. You become responsible for it when God brings it to your attention. Do you know the primary way in which he would bring it to your attention? As you interact with the Word and those that are ambassadors of the Word. Which brings us to another question. How do you feel about correction and instruction? 90% is not good enough. Jesus knew the one thing that the man had the biggest problem with, and he didn't even tell him directly. He let him deduce it. Six, seven, eight, nine. I bet the guy didn't understand until he got home, a very nice home, full of things that he treasured, more than he treasured the kingdom of God. I love this body. What's your assessment of your life? What is God's assessment of your life? There's a particular proverb. Let's go to the 12th chapter of Proverbs. Say there when you were there. Proverbs 12.1. Some of you hate this scripture because it's thrown around a lot in this church. If you hate a scripture, you need to wonder why you would hate a scripture. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Somebody say, I love it. it. But he who hates correction is? Stupid. 
We don't use that word in this house. Well, then your house is more holy than God, and you need to take it up with Him because His Word uses the word stupid. Stop making up standards that are not biblical and judging yourself holy by your ridiculous set of rules. How about you are considered holy because you do what God says when it hurts? How about you open to the 15th Psalm and look at who ascends His holy hill? It's not those that don't do a bunch of things. It's those who do the things that God requires of them. So in the first verse, we find out that there is a way to be stupid, and it has to do with how you handle instruction. Look at the 15th verse, because there's a way to be wise. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. How do you become wise? You listen to the advice of the Word. Now, You can hear the advice of the word just like me. You can know it's the standard and still fall short of the standard, but you're striving for it. You're asking him to make up the difference. It's ever before you. A wise man does not hate the standard. They love the standard. And they hate the sin that is keeping them from the standard. It may seem like a subtle difference to you, but it's really, it's a world of difference. One man is a victim. They are always picking on me. Another man is going, thank you, it's an oil, it's a kindness to me. I now realize what I need to be aiming for. Let's join arms and try to get there together. In one proverb, we find out whether or not you're stupid or wise. And it has nothing to do with anything other than how you receive instruction. The church is the right vehicle for correction. In fact, the function of the leaders in a church are to prepare you for your works of service. Ephesians 4 literally says that he appointed apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists to prepare God's people for their works of service. The reason that we exist is so that you go further in the kingdom than you would if we were not here. Why do you think the devil causes you to harbor yucky feelings towards your leaders. Because it hurts you. And if he can't get you to do that, then he'll cause you to harbor yucky feelings towards the person to your left and your right. Who do they think they are, worship like that? Who does that person... When they handle the word, they do it with a certain arrogance. Yeah, and what are you doing in your thoughts at that moment? When you're corrected and the first thing that comes to your mind is how you can level accusations against others, doesn't that say more about you than them? If you can't be corrected, no correction is ever applied to you. If it's definitely true about your neighbor, but probably not true about you, doesn't that say more about you than your neighbor? Do you think that being in a fired-up church is the same thing as being the fired-up church? 1 Timothy 3.14 says how we relate to the church. Paul said it this way, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Whose household are you? Whose household is this? Well, he makes up the standards. We don't do it. I'm going to tell you the truth. No matter how popular the pastor, no matter how many books he's written, No matter how much Oprah Winfrey loves him and the world goes after him, this is God's house. We don't have the right to change a thing about it. He makes up the rules. 
How many of you take the rule seriously that if you're at the altar and you remember that you or your brother have an offense, you leave your gift there and you go? Well, 10 years ago, this happened. Well, you've been in sin for 10 years. Doesn't matter how much you praise, worship, and dance up here. You have been in sin for 10 years. If 10 years ago somebody did something to you that is still a problem for you today, you want to know if it's a problem? How often does it come up in your thoughts? How often does it come up when you pray? When somebody else talks about it, do you immediately get defensive? I think we found your idol. A church ought not be full of idols. Listen to this. If I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Hear this. The pillar and foundation of truth. If the pillar and foundation of truth is not able to correct you, then who could? Well, you guys are not being true. Are you saying we're not church? I mean, really? Is there a person here so brash, so bold, so committed to your position that you're going to look at Eric Stevens, Matthew P. Rowe, Wade Sutherland, and say, we don't qualify as church? Because a long time before you got here, we were seeing lives changed. Long time before you got here, we were stretching into new continents. Long time before you got here, we had an awful lot of blood in this offering. Are you really going to say that to us? And by the way, when we go other places, they receive us as the church. There are a lot of salvations where I just left. Uh, a lot of people even want to know what Bible translation I'm using. Do you know how ridiculous that is? That's not a reflection on them. It occurred to me that our church is spoiled. It did. It's the growth cycle of a church. When you're hungry, when you, when you are yearning for anything you get, you're so happy that God's presence shows up, you will abase yourself. When God's presence is there in a tangible way every service, you begin to take it for granted. I could throw crumbs at those people and steaks at you. And they savored those crumbs. And you're unimpressed with steaks. I'm just being honest. The pastors in Romania have bought new Bibles. They bought new international versions, wide margins, produced by Zondervan. Because the pastors in Romania, a church that I think is probably more healthy than ours, a church that has got great vision, wonderful leadership, they so value the pastorate of this church that they simply want to sit with us and let us teach them how we study the Word. But the things we say don't apply <clears throat> to you. Let's look at Exodus 30 for a minute. Exodus 30, verse 22. Say there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels in case you can't count, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. By the way, why do you think the sanctuary was the standard for what a shekel was? Because the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. The world is crooked and bent, but what happens in here has to be sincere 
and true. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all of its articles, the lampstands and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the basin with its stands. You shall consecrate them and they will be most holy. Say most holy. holy. Things can be holy and some things most holy. You can be standing. Wow, Curtis, you got a nice smile. Curtis got married. That is most holy. Curtis was holy before, but now he knows what it is to be a priest in his home. See, we're a church that knows each other, a church that loves each other. We love each other enough to tell each other if you got something hanging out of your spiritual nose, whether you want to hear it or not. You shall consecrate them so that they will be most holy and whatever touches them will be holy. Let's be honest, weren't these just regular men though? But when God anointed them for their function, their function was holy. And whatever touched their function was holy, even though they were regular, ordinary men. Anoint Aaron and his sons. Anoint who? And consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies and do not make any oil with the same formula. Somebody say, that's not fair. Why do they get it and I don't? Did they ever ask for it? Did they beseech God for it? Or did God simply pick some people for some task and other people for others? How long can you sit and whine and moan that you were not picked for something? Does God not have the right in his house to pick who he wants for? But I have this gifting. Good for you. What does that have to do with God's household? I, I'm a pretty decent carpenter. Why don't y'all let me do more carpentry in the church? I didn't even get to build this wall. How mad can I be about that? The fact that you can do something has nothing to do with whether or not God wants you to do it in his house. It is sacred. And you are to consider it sacred. When God does tell you to do something, it's sacred. And when it is sacred and you consider it sacred, Be careful we don't spit in the face of the one who provided us with a sacred opportunity. I am going to be on every cleaning crew that I'm in town for, period. You know why? It's a sacred task, and I love it. I don't particularly care whether you come or not, because I'm going to have a good time doing it if it's just me. If you decide to come, then praise God, we'll do a sacred task together. By the way, when you want more of my time, I'm going to tell you, pick up a scrub brush and come clean with me. And if you have a particular problem with who I travel with, want to know why you weren't asked? Maybe you weren't there scrubbing the toilet with me to be asked. By the way, if I told any of you, no, you can't go on a missions trip with me. If I told anybody here that I would not disciple you, how dare you murmur about those who are being discipled? slander somebody simply because they're more hungry for the kingdom than you are. Whoever makes perfume like it, 
And whoever puts it on any other one than a priest must be cut off from his people. Our tasks are not interchangeable. You don't get to do what Nolan does. You don't get to do what Larissa does. Man, I love Larissa. A brave little girl. She showed up in our church after a brief stop in the United States from the Ivory Coast of Africa. She didn't know us from Adam's All Fox, but she felt something there. After you become more familiar with something, after the newness of the feeling wears off, do you love it less? Or do you love Larissa more? Because she's been more loyal, more invested. Can't we extend that same courtesy to those that are trying with all of their heart to wash your feet? I'd like to couple the idea of the anointing oil with another thing. Is that okay with you? Even if it's not, it's what I'm going to do. Have you noticed a certain defiance in me? You can get me to do almost anything. Just ask. Do you think you can threaten me or intimidate me or build a consensus against me? After all this time, you still don't know me. (laughs) Psalm 133 is a beautiful scripture. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Oh, come on. Say, I want to be in unity. Look at your neighbor and say, I want to be in unity. If you don't love me yet, you don't know me yet. I was talking to Nick Slaughter at the Arising Church, Pastor Slaughter, amazing man of God. He looked right at another human being and said, I know you don't love me. It's because you don't know me yet. But when you know me, you'll love me. I promise. He said, everybody else does. You will too. I went like, gosh, that's chutzpah. But I love the guy. What are you going to say? He must be right. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head. Somebody say precious. The anointing oil of God is precious. And it's poured on the head, running down on the beard. Beard. Running down on whose beard? For the anointing of God to flow in a church, yes, every person is a priest and every person is anointed. But please don't think that in God's household, the order of shalom, the order in which God established the anointing to flow, is wrong. No matter how crippled Matthew is, no matter how broken Wade is, no matter how pathetic Eric is, We are what God gave you. And the anointing runs down off of us, not because of us, it's in spite of us. I'm going to tell you the truth way up front. I admire a lot of you a whole lot more than I like myself. But we're not allowed to trade. I hadn't figured out how to do it. So I'm going to have to run on with God my own way. I'm going to be guided by His Word. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Hermon is north of Zion. These things flow downhill. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You want to know one of the reasons that blessings are cut off from a life? Because you don't have a proper view of authority. Uh, Authority is not controlling. Authority is not dogmatic. Authority is not uh, 
judgmental. Authority simply says, here's the standard. Let us all do our best to meet it. You help me, I'll help you, but don't pretend that we can ignore the standard and be blessed by God. We've been preaching on unity, been preaching on the standard, been preaching on the sufficiency of Scripture for as much as we know how. When we're discussing these things today, it's because this beautiful body that is advancing the kingdom in every way, this beautiful body that is blessing missions works on five continents, this beautiful body that is planting and assisting four other churches in the United States and more than two dozen abroad. Our beautiful church, no, the, the king's beautiful church, we have flies in our anointing oil. There have been things going on that ought not be going on. Say, oh, you should go to those people privately. I have. If somebody slanders and somebody gossips, how do you go to everyone privately? How do you do that? By the way, when somebody sins publicly, why would it not be corrected publicly? And if you're a leader in this church, if you are self-appointed or appointed by the other leaders, do you know what the Bible says about correction for leaders? It has to be done publicly. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 10.1. Oh, my goodness. It's quiet like Catholicism in here. <laughs> my daddy beats your daddy in dominoes. We could just do liturgy if you want. We could even do it in another language. You wouldn't even know what would be said. You could just eat your cracker and go home. But how would your life be benefited by that? I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help me. I've grieved over the last few weeks because I was away from the one that I love, this body, serving another body. And I heard things were going on that ought not go on in the house of God. Ecclesiastes 10.1, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I want you to understand we can get 99 things right. But one foolish conversation... Somebody calls Matthew Pirro incompetent or Eric Stevens graceless. Somebody else says, hey, man, it's a safe place here. You can criticize the church here. It's safe to do it. Just one. You know what that does to the anointing? You got to throw it out and make another batch. You got to throw it out and make another batch. I want to make another batch today. I want to identify sin. I want to throw it away. I want to say, can we not be like children before the Lord? Easily correctable. Say, oh, my goodness. My ridiculous mouth ran away from me. I don't know why I did that. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm sorry that I did it. Can we not just move forward and love each other? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going forward whether you go with me or not. It's what I was doing before you met me, and it's what I'll be doing long after you're gone. When Adam and Eve were made stewards over all the creation, man, what a role. Wasn't enough for them. They wanted to be like God. They were already made in the image of God. That wasn't enough. They wanted to be like God. When Miriam and Aaron were essential, treasured, utilized leaders, it was not enough for them. 
They were jealous of Moses' calling. When Dathan, Abiram, Korah were made priests ministering as Levites, it wasn't enough for them. They wanted Aaron's role. Is what God is doing in your life not enough for you? Do we have to watch the earth open up and swallow people? By the way, anytime you want to have a Holy Ghost prayer meeting, just you and me, and you want to test things, you bring your staff and I'll bring mine. I'll do it with any man, woman in this room. Because there's one thing this pastor is, and that is honest and transparent about my own life. I'm not scared to enter into a room and cast out demons because the demon might tell you something that I've been doing in secret. I find absolute comfort in living right out in the open, flaws and all. You don't like the way I eat? At least you know how I eat. How does Benny Hinn eat? You don't like what I drink? At least I tell you. You don't like that I smoke cigars. I don't like that you eat table salt, but I'm not going to let that come between us. Shake here, a shake there. Who's counting? You're offended at me. Okay, well, at least you know me to be offended. You want to get on our face before God? I'll do it. I'll wash your feet and then we'll do it. But let's not throw insults at those that are building the wall, huh? This kind of selfish ambition ruins ministries. It ruins households. It ruins relationships. It ruins lives. In fact, it's a kind of disgusting emotional pornography. It's as fleshly as its counterpart. Unhappy with the life that you have, where you're at, and what you're doing. You want something that you don't have. Tell me that's any different than a 13-year-old boy at the public library gazing upon an act that he doesn't get to do yet. Become convinced that your life is not where it's supposed to be and it's somebody else's fault because they don't perceive your worth. Makes you a victim in every situation. The whole world is a villain perpetrating crimes against you, but most of all, your leaders. Stop now and ask yourself a couple questions. You ready? Will you do it? What would your life look like if you never encountered this ministry? Hmm? If you never ran into us, are you better off or worse? Okay, You don't got to answer out loud. Contemplate it. It's a sincere question. If you're worse off for knowing me, then hug my neck, kiss me, and leave with a blessing. What ministry were you a part of before this one? And why'd you leave it? In fact, in your many years of history, what were the healthy ministries you were a part of? Were they all flawed while you're all righteous? Did God place you here? And if he did, was it only to instruct the rest of us on your misappropriated giftings? Or was it to teach you something as well? Before we answer those questions, I've looked to Nehemiah very often because he had an impossible task. I wrote down things from Nehemiah to go share with the church in Chicago. Sure, that those people needed this message. 
I found no way to give it there. Preached on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Preached on the flow of the anointing. Preached on total surrender. Preached on the sufficiency of Scripture. I preached every day, two or three times a day. And the message that I had hoped was for them is actually for us. Nehemiah 4, 4 through 5. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Are you throwing insults in the face of those people who are trying to help build your life? Nehemiah 3.5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Do you work very well? Off alone, your own private little ministry, but you will not work under the supervisors God has given you. Are you putting your shoulders to the work or criticizing those who do? Like I said, I'd hope this was for anybody else. Nehemiah 5, 6 through 8. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are exacting usury. That's interest. From your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers. In other words, we're saving lives. Who were sold to the Gentiles. But now you are selling your brothers. Only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Are you exacting spiritual usury from your brothers? Benefiting from their lives while charging, charging them with error? How many of you are disappointed when you go to the doctor and he tells you what's wrong with you? It's what you're paying for, isn't it? But we want to go to a church and hear that we're wonderful. Go to your hairstylist. They'll lie to you. Here, we're going to tell you the truth. In Nehemiah 6.10, one day I went to the house of Shimeiah, son of Adeliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was shut up in his home. Somebody say, shut up in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. I've only got your best interest in mind. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Is your advice, your comment, your suggestion, dare I say your gossip, born of the counsel of God for the benefit of this work or have you unwittingly hired yourself out to the enemy who wants to stop the work here? It's a fair question, isn't it? 
Some of you are glad it's your first service. You're like, he cannot be talking about me. <laughs> Here's a simple reminder. Three passages. We're nearing an end here. Three passages just to, man, if, if I've been using so far a feather, here comes the sledgehammer. And if you feel like I've been using a sledgehammer, hold on to your seat. <laughs> Psalm 101, verse 5. It's like that old guy preaching on YouTube says, we're about to fix this thing. Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. That's not me, really. Did you say anything about anyone else in this church behind their back, something that you'd prefer not to have dragged out in public today? Are you sure it's not you? By the way, you ought to read this in the New American Standard or in the Amplified. God says, I cannot and I will not endure such a man. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes. When you look at people, are you looking at them with the eyes of God? Are you looking at them with your own judgments? Are you really sure that the attributes you've ascribed to them are true? Lying tongue. When you spoke about somebody and you added just a little detail that didn't actually happen so that whoever you're talking to would understand your point of view. So God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Well, apparently he hates their eyes, their tongues, their hands, their heart, their feet. Oh, and in verse 19, their person. Hands that shed innocent blood. Have you spent time being destructive about those you're building the kingdom with? So, no, no, I was only doing it so we would know how to pray. Are you actually praying for them then, or are you only telling other people every flaw that you think they have? A heart that devises wicked schemes. Do you play out in your mind how the conversation's going to go before you have it? You've already put words in their mouths that they didn't say that are not right. No, no, my heart is pure, Pastor. Well, the Bible says your heart is wicked. So no, no, my my newly created heart, it's pure. I'm glad that you've reached a place where you don't sin, but I haven't. Even in my newly created heart, my newly created life. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. Are you running to tell people when you think somebody else in here has not gotten it right? I prayed for people to get out of wheelchairs. Some of their pictures are on the wall. I've watched tumors fall off of people, seen deaf ears open. I prayed for a man in India that I thought, God, he had to be 300 years old. <laughs> His demon-possessed got freed and walked home. But I prayed for an awful lot more that didn't get healed. <coughs> it's not a problem with God. It's probably with me. Probably my fault. But let me ask you, if I was there praying for them and you were sitting at home, 
Don't you have to ask the question, at least he was trying, what were you doing? Why are we so quick to point fingers at our brothers when they try things that don't work while you sit on your salvation? Did my lip curl when I said that? Was there a micro expression? It makes me angry. There, you don't have to, there's no subtlety involved. That makes me angry. I think it's a shameful thing to throw insults in the face of those that are building the kingdom. I think it's a more shameful thing to throw them behind their backs where they can't even address them. A false witness who pours out lies. Are you sure the things that you're saying about your brothers and sisters are true? Are you sure? I mean, you have firsthand knowledge? Or is it only your perception? I've noticed people have no problem throwing my name in conversations I was never a part of, throwing Wade's name, Matthew's name, in conversations they were never a part of and indicting years of ministry work in a single sentence. We haven't done enough for you, I'm sorry. If I'd known, I'd try to do more. Do you feel me yet? I got to walk into a meeting of my peers, teach on the pure standards of leadership. I got to walk into a meeting of my peers and talk on what it means to be an elder, what it means to be on a worship team, what it means to draw people close to your life and have my peers tell me things about our own house that I didn't know because you told them and you didn't tell me. Anybody in here like to be in that kind of ambush? They loved me. They loved me enough to tell me. They loved me enough to repent for even being a party to the conversation. I could read to you Galatians 9. I'm sorry, Galatians 5, 19. I'm not going to read it to you. Let me just say this list real quick for you. Discord, impurity, jealousy. <clears throat> None of that in the house of God. Would you remove somebody else from the worship team so you could be on it? Selfish ambition. There's an awful lot of that in here. I want to tell you the truth. If you think you'd be a better pastor, I'll give you a chance to try. I never wanted the job. This is not selfish ambition. God Almighty told me to come here. I was so distressed in the first year that I came here because it was so incredibly hard and we were seeing no results. I lost almost 80 pounds. Dissensions. None of that. Charlie I like. Steve I don't like. Boz is wonderful, but not so much Brent. Alex preaches wonderfully. But David, David, when he prays, it's with a certain... Come on. This is unbecoming of the people of God. Factions. Factions. We gave you three pastors, not so you could divide into thirds and declare war. <laughs> we gave you three pastors to make sure that there was not one person who was being overlooked in any area. And you know what? We're still falling short. There's three of us and there's not enough. You know why? Because we're a bunch of screwed up people. That's why. Because we got serious issues and the fact that we're affluent, you may not feel affluent, I don't feel affluent, but on the world stage, we are awful affluent. Because we're affluent, we're not aware of what our issues are. We've been placed in the Garden of Eden and we think the problem is our environment. Tell you what, you can come live with me in the garbage dump in Mexico for a while or in Yanni Palam in India or on the east coast of Africa, a couple of villages in Romania. 
You can come live with me in those places for a while and you might find out that your problem's not what you think it is. Your problem's actually you. If killing me will fix your problem, go ahead and do it. If murdering someone behind their back will fix your problem, by all means, go ahead and do it. But if you've already tried that and your problem is still the same as it's always been, then perhaps you've been searching for something in the wrong place. Is that not fair? Now, I'm not supposed to give a correction without offering a solution. Real corrections always open to life. Would you like some life? You're going to find it in two scriptures. Could you put 1 Timothy 6, 16 on the screen for everyone? Just a minute. We're going to begin to pray. We're going to begin to worship. And the Holy Ghost is going to do surgery in this room. And if we don't get it right here in this room, then you're going to get a knock on the door from me this week and we're going to get it right in private. I'm going to suggest mercies to be found in public. I'm going to suggest that. Because I don't much care whether I have to do this with a handful or not. Jesus changed the world with 12. He did. But what I am not going to do is let a goat loose among the sheep, butting everybody and injuring lives. It's not going to happen. The good thing is, is God will take those who are discontented. He did it with David. And he'll turn them into mighty fighting men. It just requires them to know their condition, admit it, and move on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is not a scarlet letter. This is not a label. This is a know your condition so that you can move on. Are you in 1 Timothy 6? I'm going to read to you out of verse 16 here in just a second. Just prior to that, though, I want to share something else with you. For every 100 grams of cinnamon, according to the FDA, and we're the cleanest country in the world, uh, according to them, for every 100 grams of cinnamon, it is okay to include 400 or more insect fragments, legs, head, wings, thoraxes, and 22 or more rodent hairs. The FDA refers to those things simply as rodent filth. And for every 100 grams of cinnamon, you can have 400 more, 400 or more parts of those. Anybody want some cinnamon? How about a cinnamon latte? How about this one? Up to 60% of frozen berries can be moldy with an average of four or more larvae or 10 or more whole insects per 500 grams. Give you an idea of what 500 grams of frozen berries is like? Your average pie recipe is 550 grams of frozen berries. So in an average pie, you can have four or more larvae without a problem, 10 or more whole insects without a problem. How do you feel about that? You find that unacceptable? How much more for the house of God? By the way, I took this off the FDA website this morning. Meat of all sorts, ground beef, chicken nuggets, taco fillings, etc. Must be at least 35% actual meat. 
The other 65% doesn't have to be meat and can be made up of any mixture of edible fillers and chemicals, including cornstarch, water, soy, maltodextrin, silicone dioxide, food colorings, and artificial flavorings. And you're mad at me for what I eat and drink? Tomato paste, pizza sauce, and other sauces in the same category can include 30 or more fly eggs per 100 grams. Alternatively, you can have 15 or more fly eggs in one or more maggots, or two or more maggots, but not all of the above. Who wants some chocolate? Cocoa beans can be 4% moldy or insect infested, but only 6% moldy and insect infested. More than 10 milligrams of mammalian excrea is permitted per pound of cocoa beans. Get you some. Wheat flour, 150 grams of wheat flour, I'm sorry, 100 grams of wheat flour can have 150 insect fragments in it without a problem. 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to, be, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Oh, my goodness. Do you want to be rich in good deeds, or do you want fly fragments in your fruit before the living God? Anyone? In John 3.27, let us put it on the screen. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. What can you receive, friends? Only what's given you from heaven. You ever read that Paul would be content with food and clothing? You ever read that he wrote to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain? You say, I'm godly. Well, amen. The other part of the solution is content. You're godly. I'm not sure what that means to you, but let's just for argument accept your list of things that you don't do, and that's why you're godly. Are you content with your place in life? Do you love your purpose? You're excited about your purpose. Are you convinced that in this body your purpose is just not understood? You're, you're underutilized. You're waiting one day for someone else to wake up and bask in the greatness of your calling that has been so misunderstood. 
You know what the word contentment means? It means to be satisfied with what one has, who one is, and what one does. Have a satisfied state of mind, a satisfied heart, a satisfied soul before God over it. When you know who you are in Christ, you'll be happy. As long as you are pretty sure that you're someone other than the way that you're living now and that someone else is the problem, well, you're going to be as discontented as you have been in all the previous years. I'm asking that we could come to our senses today. Nobody in here is holding you back, not your leaders, not the people that are sitting on your left and right. You write poetry and we haven't loved it yet. Take that up with God. We're not stopping you from writing poetry. You have a thriving ministry somewhere else doing something else. We're not holding you back. You walked into this place because you saw something here you liked. You felt health. You felt life. Ask yourself, at what point did it stop being that? And did it change? Or is something surfacing in you that has been there for many years and it's surfaced in every church you've ever been in and in most relationships you've ever had? Matthew, could you come to the front? We're going to do something here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to give us a chance to get it right. We're going to worship. If you're done with this, if you're done with us, I'm not going to chase you out the door. If you have a prior commitment and this really just didn't pertain to you, again, not writing your name down, not chasing you out the door. But if sitting here at some point during this message, in some area, the Holy Ghost brought something to your mind where you're like, I wish I hadn't done that. This is a chance to get it right. This is a clean the house Sunday. Because what's going to happen next Sunday? We're going to show up early. We're going to pray. We're going to see souls saved. We're going to see people baptized in the Holy Ghost. We're going to see the sick healed. I'm going to obtain a better resurrection. You know why? It's up to me. I can do it. I can do it because all I have to do is lean on him and he'll do it through me. What I'm not going to do is sit and wallow in my misery or yours. Not going to do it. Not going to throw a pity party for you or me. And if you're mad at me about that, like I said, the same door that you walked in here, you can walk out of. But the house of God is going to be pure. Amen. Amen. Could we stand to our feet?